Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Welcome to the Phil Hay Show. It's brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. I'm Dan from The Square Ball, joined by Michael from The Square Ball and from The Athletic, of course, Phil Hay. You can subscribe to The Athletic, read all Phil's stuff about Leeds. There's plenty more on the site there from the football world and sport around the globe, theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod. Pound a month for six months. Phil, what's there this week? We have an interview this week with a basketball coach from the States by the name of Mitch Henderson, who is a very, very close friend of Jesse Marsh's and was over here last week, came for a visit virtually as soon as, as Marsh landed in Leeds. A look there into Marsh's personality and psyche, which I think you may enjoy. Oh, good stuff. Theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod to sign up for The Athletic and check that out. And we'll talk about some of the stuff that's that's on the site as well this week. First, let's get into the football and a draw against Southampton. How does that look now as we are recording on Thursday, the uh, the day after Burnley have beaten Everton? It was a fair result, I thought, and I don't think it was a bad point at all on the back of two wins. Seven points from three games is pretty much exactly what you're looking for at, at this stage of the season when you're in Leeds position. It was there to be won, though, and, and particularly in the first half, and there was no doubt in the, in the second half that there was a swing towards Southampton uh, and that the, the early control was lost somewhat. I, I felt that Marsh was... It was more upbeat about the performance than than I was at the end of the game. I didn't think it was it was a bad performance. I didn't think Leeds played poorly, but it it was a game that they they could have closed out from half time onwards and suddenly didn't feel like they were going to. I think it it felt a little bit before half time that a Southampton goal was coming. As soon as they got a free kick in that position on the edge of the box at Ward Prowse territory, I, I mean he he is absurdly consistent with his free kicks. It's not even the goals he scores. If you go through all his free kicks and analyse them, he basically asks questions with all of them. Your goalkeepers never just get easy hits over the bar, you know, efforts that go a long way wide. It's it's really, really dangerous ground. And Marsh said afterwards, I, I kind of call that a penalty. And, and it is a little bit like that with Ward Prowse. You do think he'll, he'll do that. And for all that I saw a bit of criticism of Melier afterwards, I thought that was a good hit and difficult to stop. So there were chances and, and it, you know, it, it could have gone... Leeds way, but I think in the end, I, I kind of felt that Southampton had done enough for a point. Uh, was Melier still carrying some of the after effects from being booted down at Wolves by Jimenez? Because he was he got some pretty heavy bruising, didn't he, around his uh, his midsection? He did, and and watching him limp off at Molyneux, you felt straight away that the likelihood was he was going to have to miss certainly the international call up that he'd had from France under twenty ones, but also potentially a, a game or two for Leeds because it didn't look very clever, but. Leeds were perfectly happy with his conditioning and I don't think it would be an excuse for the fact that that goal went in. He, he did get fingers to it, he, he did get across. If, he, if you're going to be hypercritical, you would say that in those circumstances it, it was in a position where a keeper could potentially save it. But I just felt it was well hit, it was well placed. It was Ward Prowse doing what he does. I, I didn't think it was a goal where you had to particularly apportion blame. Good point then for Leeds, do you think? Because it did feel like... I think to a certain extent, certainly Southampton did after Phillips came on in the game, sort of shifted momentum a little bit. 
they'd settled for a point at that point and had Leeds to a certain extent tightened it up a bit. It did definitely tighten things up, Phillips coming in. I noticed afterwards, and Marsh mentioned this at his press conference today, that Phillips kind of said, I didn't do very much. And actually, to the naked eye, you didn't feel him being massively involved in that last half hour. It wasn't as if he was pulling the strings to a huge extent and, and making everything tick. But I do think he, he was influential in just tightening it up and stopping a little of what had been going on previously. You know, I was saying you, you can't really apportion blame, I don't think, for the, the Ward Prowse free kick. What you can do is, is criticise the defending leading up to it, particularly with the attempt to stop Walker Peters, who suddenly became, I mean, he's a very good player and suddenly became a real handful immediately after halftime, was causing a lot of problems down the right. And and that was what led to that that chance. And I think given the way Southampton play, if you're going to maximise your, your chances against them, the one thing you don't do is give away free kicks in that sort of position or you guard against them as much as you can. So I think in the, in the closing stages, you felt that if a goal was coming in that period, it was going to come from Leeds. But it didn't feel like a day when we were going to get another Norwich um, or another Wolves. I think somebody said beforehand that it would have been a Premier League record to win three games in a row with an injury time goal or a, a last minute goal. But it didn't have that vibe about it particularly. When it comes to Calvin, do you both share that same sense of the confidence rising in the Leeds fans when he came on. He just he just kind of occupies that space, doesn't he? And you feel a bit more security when he's there in the midfield, just tidying things up. He's got a swagger as Phillips. He always just looks like he's he's very unruffled by what's going on. And I do think there is... He's not the only one that, that this applies to, but he is a player who you want on the pitch rather than off the pitch. And there is, I think, a difference in the optimism and the confidence of the crowd when you have Phillips in the mix. I think justifiably so, because he does make a difference to the team. He does make a difference consistently. One of the things that seemed to me that happened as Southampton got into the game was that the, the midfield two of Forshaw and Cleek became a little bit detached from Rodrigo. And because of that, there was a lot of space for Southampton to to play in and, and to hold the ball in. And we'd seen in the first half that the, the thing I thought, I was writing about this earlier this week, the thing I thought that, that shone through was the way in which Marsh is leaning really heavily on transitional attacks through the middle, that very much seems to me to be the tactical approach when it comes to, to attacking play. But without the control, the same control in the second half, it, it was hard to, to get themselves into positions where they were able to, to attack in quite the same way, quite as consistently. And I think Phillips coming on just showed things up a little bit. It, it made Leeds better on the ball. It gave Southampton less of it. And it did really nail down a draw. As I say, I, I think the goal... If, if there was going to be a third goal, it was probably more likely to come from Leeds towards the end. But I don't think many of us were expecting it to come at all. I feel like the point was, at the 2 all last night, it seemed like a really good point because we'd not lost ground on anyone. No one had caught up at all. Even even in the, the Burnley-Everton game, you're thinking, OK, this is this is pretty much perfect. Could have got the three, but this is this is absolutely fine. It just scrubs another week off that we're not going to get, no one's going to kind of gain any ground on us. As it was after last night, it feels a little bit like a wasted opportunity, but I mean, from watching the game last night, and neither of them looked any good, no. which was the slightly reassuring aspect of it. And they both now need to win both their games in hand in order to catch us, don't they? So whilst it's probably the most scary result out of the three results that could have happened between Burnley and Everton, it does leave them both needing to perform in order to catch us, so... We only need to escape one of them. It's like making sure you're not furthest back when the lion's chasing you, isn't it? Oh, what they say about a bear, don't, yeah. r- don't outrun the bear, outrun the guy next to yeah, you. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, who is Sean Dyche or Frank Lampard. I mean, yeah. there was a fair amount of amusement after the game about what's happening to Lampard and, and Everton, certainly from a Leeds perspective. 
I think twenty four. Not from us far too mature. I, I think <laughs> no, 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 absolutely. I think twenty four hours on, you can't help but say that that's probably the worst possible result for Leeds. Is it uh, not? Is it, it not that people are, people are taking comfort in the fact that it's upset Lampard? You know, it's basically it's the booby prize for laughing at being able to laugh at him for the worst outcome. Yeah, that that's possibly true. And if you start to pick through Everton's fixtures remaining, there is no doubt that they are in massive, massive trouble. But I think Leeds have gone from potentially feeling last weekend like they were not out of it, but you know, getting there. Burnley go to Norwich this weekend, and that is very, very winnable for them. And I think suddenly the Watford game, which was big anyway, and. I sort of felt after the Southampton game, Watford had become almost like the last chance for Leeds to do that sort of Leeds thing where suddenly rather than slamming the door on relegation, they, they open it up again by going there and, and struggling and, and getting beaten. And and it is in my mind the weekend where they can kill it all. You know, if, if they go to Vicarage Road and win, I do think they're just about there, irrespective of the fact that, that Burnley and, and Everton are still kind of on, on the tail. But I think had it been... Burnley on 22 points, Watford on 22 points. Or, or I think Burnley would have been on, on 21 had they lost to Everton. It is a long way back from mm. where Leeds are and, and it's a big gap to to make up. So not the, the ideal result, but I think of all the clubs down there, if you accept that Norwich and Watford probably realise that the odds are heavily stacked against them, of all the clubs down there, Everton will be in the worst frame of mind at the moment. I don't think there's any doubt about that. We'll talk more about the Watford side of things towards the back end of the show when we uh, get around to the Marsh Press Conference and, and previewing that game. Just returning to the Southampton game and with reference to the crowd and the way the crowd's responding, I thought it was quite interesting what Marsh was talking about, about going from 100 to 70, about slowing the game down and Leeds fans having to get used to his style of play, basically. Yeah, he was talking about miles an hour, basically, and, and the the idea or his attitude that you you can't go at 100 miles an hour all the time and that it might help his team in this tactical setup to every now and again take a bit of time to think. And and that, I think, on Saturday particularly applied to the moments when Melee had the ball on the edge of the box and, and had clear options to throw the ball out, you know. And, and I think under Bielsa would have done that, you know, would have looked straight away for the ball from the box that, that set somebody running, running down the wing or, or into space. And his choice was to hold on to it. And there was some grumbling in the stands and you could see people saying, you know, understandably, I think, because everybody has been indoctrinated into this brand of football with with Bielsa that was so watchable and so attractive and actually just so exciting. That was the thing about it. And it was, you know, Bielsa hated the idea of losing time in games, you know, time wasting and so on. He He would never call it out specifically, but he'd always leave that impression that it's not for him that that's not what he does. And yes, it's, it's kind of allowed, but from time to time, he would dip in with comments along the lines of, you know, referees and assistants and everything else have ways of dealing with this. You know, there are rules that you can, that can stop this because his preference was to have the game raging constantly. You know, inten- <laughs> intensity was just what he loved and it worked incredibly well for him. And it was such a long stint for him in charge at a club where managers have done well to last the season, you know, going back a decade that it is what we're all used to and it is what the, the crowd are used to. I don't think it will be difficult for the stadium to get used to the, the, the idea of 170 if Leeds are playing well and are winning games and looking like a good team. I think it's the sort of thing that will frustrate people if it's not going particularly well and they're not looking like a good team. That is, If, if it's part of a, a successful and productive framework, then I think it's fine. I think it's one of those things as well. It's about getting used to a style of it. The, the thing with Bielsa was the attacking never stopped. 
which occasionally, if you just needed to take a breather, was hard to watch. And I guess when you, you're feeling you want to push forward, this style is hard to watch in a different way. Mm. And it's just, it's kind of everyone getting used to to how that works. I can see what, I think it was, I think some people have got a little bit annoyed with with Marsh saying that because it was a bit like you just you know telling us how to be fans. Yeah. yeah, almost like you don't 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 tell us what we what we think. If we're annoyed by it, we'll say we're annoyed by it. But I, I think there probably is some truth in it. Well, I, he did say afterwards. You know, that's something I need to learn about as well. Is that that's what the stadium are looking for, and and that's what they're that's what they're after. I've said before that I almost felt in Bielsa's second season that the players started to regulate themselves a little bit, and there were certain games where rather than season one where it was all out attack to the death you know where Leeds would be 1-0 up in, in crucial games and we'd still have six players on the edge of the opposition box we'd still be looking for second goal in injury time it, it did ease off slightly not to a great extent but ever so slightly in, in the second season with Bielsa with Marsh what we're still waiting for I feel is and I was talking about the transitional attacks I think you can see in that what he's trying to do but we're still waiting and I think we're going to have to wait until next season to properly get a picture of what this team is going to be and what they're going to do. And more to the point, whether in different circumstances when you have pre-season and a transfer window and a clear season to run at, if it's going to be significantly different and if it's going to be significantly successful, it's it's a little bit too early in my mind to draw conclusions about that. Because until that system is properly bedded in, I think we're going to see a little bit of what we've seen so far, which is percentage balls because players are trying to follow the instructions, but the whole thing is not quite meshing together yet, so they're just hitting the channels. I think it will it will make them unpredictable as well. I, th- I think it means that going to Watford this weekend, you feel sort of naturally confident because of the way Watford are and, and the fact that Leeds have had a few results behind them, but you know that it hasn't been perfect so far. You know that the performances have been patchy. I, I thought the, you know, the, the Norwich game, but probably more so the Wolves game, was far more about digging it out than it was about employing a, a system that worked to a T. Um, so you, you're not quite sure what you're, you're expecting at the moment, but there's no denying that circumstances are difficult and it was a difficult season to come into, you know, coming into a season that was, without any doubt, going wrong and, and I'd been, been diff- you know, I'd been hard from, from the very beginning. Um, so as I say, kind of drawing con- clear conclusions about this is, is difficult at the moment. And I do think more and more that, you know, recruitment, in the summer is one of the things that will help this fall into place. And we've seen the accounts, they've been released, uh, it was Thursday morning, wasn't it? They were they were made public and we've had quite a lot of analysis of it. We probably don't need to get too granular on it because let's face it, we're not accountants and we don't necessarily understand all the stuff that's in there. But overall, to sum it up in a few sentences or whatever, we might say that things are looking pretty healthy after the first season in the Premier League. Well, to sum it up in one sentence, it's the Premier League rather than the Championship and you notice the jump straight away even despite Leeds saying in the accounts that they reckon the... the and just to say, these are the accounts from 2020-21, um, so not for this season, for last season. But even though Leeds said that they lost £23 million through COVID at an estimate, they still posted an operating profit of £5 million, overall profit of £26 million. It should be said that, that part of that was a shareholder, I would assume Radrizani, although I don't know that for certain, writing off loans of, of £21 million. But essentially, you've gone from a loss of almost £63 million in the last championship season to a profit, which is something that very few football clubs post and Leeds have only done twice in the last decade. Um, one of those under Chileno, one of them going back to um, to Ken Bates. It just shows the absolutely ridiculous gulf between the EFL and the Premier League. I mean, you'll you remember that 
there was a period where Leeds were chipping away at the EFL and, and complaining publicly about the, the EFL's TV deal and the fact that it wasn't worth enough money and clubs didn't draw enough from it. And you go from TV money of less than £2 million and central revenue of, of £7 million in the Championship to central revenue of £110 million and, and TV money of about £22 million. The difference is absolutely enormous and it explains why there's been such a turnaround in the accounts. And, and it, it was quite often said that Leeds getting promoted would solve a multitude of financial issues at Ellen Road and to an extent it has and you can absolutely see why. Those um, those championship accounts, the loss there was, it was some in some way artificial, wasn't it? Because it included the bonuses for promotion, which, which was, was like 20 odd million or which something. Which was obviously then on the back of saying, but we know this money's coming in. And then there was the, the Premier League TV, TV rebate. rebate. Yeah. We paid in that set of accounts as well. So there's some, so there's, there was some sort of slightly... They kind of, they stuffed it all in there, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, there were things that wouldn't have happened if we hadn't gone up. There certainly were. But had they not come out of those accounts, they would have come out of these accounts. So you would still mm. have been losing the money somewhere. Well, you, well, you wouldn't have had the promotion bonus though, for example. What, what, yeah, well, had, they, oh, had yeah. they not come up? No, yeah. no, no, absolutely. But then you wouldn't have had promotion either. And you would have been in a situation where you'd have had to have tightened belts and the cutbacks would have had to have come. They could not have pushed on with that sort of, you know, with, at, at that sort of level. I mean, it, irrespective of that, the, you know, the wage bill came in at 78 million in that season, which was way above the, the turnover of about 54. Whereas this time around, you've got a wage bill of 108 million versus turnover of 171 million. So the difference is absolutely massive. And it does kind of kind of explain why it is that clubs are so desperate to be in this league and then why it is that they're so desperate to stay in it. And if, again, if you look at the bonuses that are on offer for avoiding relegation, it's £35 million for last season, which you know has been earned and paid. And it's um, it's closer to 50 for this season. 48 this time. Isn't yeah. It? yeah. Um, so, because I mean, I saw those figures. Incentivised. Yeah, I saw those figures and at first I thought, bloody hell, that's a lot of money. But then actually, the more I thought about it, the more it makes sense because we're not, putting the club at risk through spending too much on wages or transfer fees or whatever it might be. And I know as fans, we always want to see, like, go out and spend 100 million every window, brilliant. But to credit them, they're running a tight ship there. You know, one of the few clubs to actually make a profit along with Sheffield United. And then to have all the staying up bonuses or a lot of the money weighted in that way where the expenditure only comes out if you guaranteed the income from the Premier League the next year. It makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? To say that like we're not on the hook for 48 million if we happen to go down. It's all... It's incentivised. And, and also, most of the contracts for major players includes relegation provisions, you know, which which is sensible thing to do. I mean, it, it's ludicrous and, and lunacy really for any Premier League not, club not to do that because you, you do have to guard yourself against a bad season. I mean, to take Everton as an example, they are in, at the moment, more trouble than Leeds. And I don't know what the situation is with them contractually, but if they do have relegation provisions, then they might well need it, uh, might need them. If they don't have relegation provisions, then they might well suffer heavily because of that. Um, so you do have to be sensible, and I do think I do think it, it paints a, a pretty steady and, and promising financial position. It leads the issue is, and, and I should say that I can't imagine the situation being vastly different at the end of this season because there has been more investment from the 49ers. They haven't had the, the same impact of COVID, so they've had a full stadium. Match day revenue is has returned. They didn't commit as much in last summer transfer window as they did in the previous one when they came up from the championship. The issue is that they haven't performed as well, anywhere near as well as a team this season. So that that to me looks like the room for improvement as opposed to, you know, the account specifically. Everton, of course, suffered uh, £103 million due to have a loss due to COVID versus our our twenty three as well. Which is, the, re- the reasoning for that which is, is that they which is interesting. Could have sold a player for could have sold a player for sixty million. Yeah. Yeah. Could have done. Um, and obviously 
obviously you can. Yeah, I mean that that is that's what you what you could do. Um, but that, <laughs> Phil being that, diplomatic. That, yeah, that that sort of touches on quite an interesting point though, which is that through these, I, I, there is obviously forever a debate about recruitment and expenditure, but through these past four transfer windows when Leeds have been in the Premier League, at no stage has any of it been funded by player sales. You know, there is no income of note that's come from selling players. Now, that might change this summer. You know, it might be that this is the first summer at this level where, where they decide to, to cash in on somebody or to take a big offer for somebody. But it has come from, essentially, club funds. You know, it has not been a case of one out the door, one one in the door. That's been a fact. And what's encouraging as well is that we're in the probably the ballpark of a £200 million turnover, all things being equal, which is phenomenal from where we've come from. We might not quite break it this time because, like I said, there's some tweaks in the league finishing position of the TV money. But even still, to be in that ballpark is is phenomenal, isn't it? Well, they, they were very commercially successful or productive in the championship as well. I mean, the, the, t- the last turnover they posted in that division of 54 million was miles beyond what the, you know, the average championship or EFL club was able to to generate. And it, I haven't checked this in, in detail, but I suspect it's probably the highest revenue that there's ever been in that league, given that, you know, money keeps on increasing and, and payments keep going up for things like sponsorship and so on. It, it, it was as high as you, you're ever likely to get. But even despite that, the loss was absolutely massive and, and the wage bill went went far beyond it. So, yeah, I mean, it's not particularly romantic, the Premier League, when it comes to finances, but it's definitely the place to be. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So Liam Cooper returned against Southampton. I personally thought he was really good in the heart of the defence. What do you think he brings to the team and what does he add? I think you get more leadership and organisation from him than you do from anybody else across the back four or five million included I've always felt it's been one of Cooper's biggest strengths and I think I think Bielsa saw that as well we, when we saw he was in the team and replacing Strike and, and Marsh did say you know Strike had had um, COVID and, and had a, a little hamstring niggle as well but essentially he was picking from two players who want 100% match fix the plan was never to, to play Cooper right through 90 minutes and there was that weird mix up in injury time where they took off Ailing instead of taking off Cooper, it's a bit hard to work out how that had happened, but in the end, it, it didn't really matter. And, and obviously, Cooper had injures, injuries during Bielsa's time as head coach, but in the whole of that period, nigh on four years, when he was fit and available, he was only a substitute in two Premier League games and was only an unused substitute once. In other words, any time he was fit and available, he played. And I kind of said in my match piece, you know, that was always, when it came to centre-backs, that was always where Bielsa bet the house. You know, you could have... Berardi in the team, Janssen in the team, there was Ben White um, for that season on loan. Latterly, there's been Robin Koch and Diego Llorente and also Pascal Stroik. But it was always Cooper. It was always Cooper who was who was in the team. 
And I don't think anybody can deny, and Cooper would probably say this himself, that there's a ceiling when it comes to his ability as a defender, although I think he's coped pretty well in the Premier League. I do think he's he's had plenty of good games. But there is something about him which seems to hold the team together defensively better than most other players who are at Leeds, I think. And I agree with you. I thought he had a, a really good game on Saturday. I it, To say that he'd, he'd been out from the start of December... And I just found it interesting that, you know, this is him five years in now to to being captain. It was 2017 when he, he first got the armband. And it's four years on from, you know, the start of the Bielsa reign as well. And it is still Cooper who is who is in there and playing, um, despite the fact that I think over time, a lot of us thought that he might get displaced. I think a lot of us thought that, that Strike, and, and probably still do think that Strike's a bit of a natural successor there. I might have said on the podcast last week, because this is how I, I felt, that with Stroik, it, it seemed to me that this would have been a good time to try and let him play through some poor form and to kind of prove himself as a as a good long-term choice or, or a kind of permanent choice on the left side of defence. But post-game, I, I can't argue at all with the decision to recall Cooper because I thought he played really well. I think the feeling that he's going to be replaced at some point goes back to Kyle Bartley, weirdly enough, which is... Feels feels a world away now from from the the Leeds United that we find today. But when when he came in and was formed that partnership with Janssen, it was like okay, we need to get someone better than Cooper. And then Bielsa had obviously seen something uh, from the from the videos because he was he, from the start he picked him out, didn't he? As as the type of defender he wanted. And also in that summer before Bielsa came in, they were seriously thinking about going back in for Kyle Bartley. And then that all just died a death because it wasn't on Bielsa's agenda. He was quite happy with what he had with centre backs between Janssen, Berardi and, and Cooper. I was saying that the, the kind of key moment for Cooper was that summer where he got the captaincy, where Christensen stuck it on his, his peg away at Bolton before the first game. Because the previous season, he'd, he'd, he'd been like the spare part and he'd been the additional one, or the, the kind of odd one out of three. So you had Janssen and you had Bartley and that partnership was just there and permanently fixed. And then you had Cooper, who was very much in reserve and and never really got a chance to play particularly well. He 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 said, you know, latterly that the style of play back then just didn't suit him. He was somebody who needed to be more on the ball, needed to be in a sort of possession based team, which Bielsa's hundred percent were. And I think, you know, when we were talking about high value transfers last, um, you know, last week and and what inflation had done, he still looks such good value at, at six hundred grand um, from Chesterfield, what would be the equivalent of about a million quid today. It's been an excellent signing and I do think he's been, in a, in a really kind of quiet and understated way, I do think he's been an excellent captain. Do you think he doesn't get enough respect? No, he probably doesn't, no. Well, this goes I, back to when he was League One Liam, when he was the third choice, wasn't it? But I, I don't think in order to respect him, you have to say that he's the world's outstanding centre-back. And I don't think you have to pretend that there aren't days where he, it goes wrong for him or, or where he, he kind of misfires, because that has happened and, and we have seen it. But I think he he's consistent enough and good enough to deserve his, his place in the team and you do hear this thing constantly of we, we you know we could get better than him but you could get literally with the exception of a few teams in the world you could get better than every single player in the team you know if, if money was no object and you were just recruiting and recruiting you could improve on every position but you cannot do a living positions back to front you know there are times where you have to make the best of what you've got and you have to see I guess you, you've got to see the, the good qualities in people and I think over the course of four years, I think it's quite hard to pick much fault with him. Like I say, I think he's been a very, very good captain. I think he's been an extremely good centre-back for the club as well. I, I think he's been good. Do you think he was a nice calming influence on Diego Llorente against Southampton? <laughs> <laughs> he's a funny one, isn't he, Llorente? Because there are moments where... Because when he came in, you thought, oh, he's good, him. 
he's really sort of tidied things up at the back there. He's he's a useful footballer. But as I described it this week, he's always he's just got that low key on the verge of doing a madness about him. Just that kind of half second of slipped concentration, the ball slips away from him, he doesn't quite pick out the right pass. It's just always there. You've put on the notes, is he a bit out there? Which is probably the best way I can think of of describing him. There is a there is quite an eccentric side to to his game. And he does have games where he defends extremely well. He does have games where he passes extremely well. Some of his distribution at his best is, is really good, particularly over long distances. But I don't think this season has helped anybody to to be consistent right the way through it. I don't think he has been in any way. And, and I don't think he's he's playing anywhere near as well now as he was in the back end of last season where he, he seemed to make quite a big difference to the defence and, and the defensive record. I mean, Leeds have gone through almost every conceivable centre-back pairing this season that's how it's been that's what the injuries have done that's what the the form has done and I still feel that in amongst quite a few things that need to happen to the team having a fixed partnership there that lasts for any significant length of time is going to be critical and I constantly look at Robin Koch and think Germany International there is somebody who has to be more prominent and has to come come forward more he's had so many injuries that he's never really had a decent run in the team he's played a lot in midfield um, rather than at at centre-back and and I think as I say next season that is one thing that you'd love to see centre-back pairing that a bit like Janssen and Bartley just picked itself week after week and was fit week after week We're not selling him then? Well Marsh spoke really highly of him today at his press conference he said you know I've, I've been really impressed with Cock in training and, and it's a slight issue that I'm seeing him train that well and I'm not giving him a game that's kind of the position you want to get to as, as a coach where you've got players that, that you feel like you have to choose between as opposed to looking at his squad and thinking, I don't really want to pick any of these. You know, like, what's, what, what's going on? That's, Do we have to? Yeah, somebody's, somebody's got to fill in there. I've always liked Cox's game. I think there is a very, very good player there, just a player who hasn't been fit enough and, and hasn't been in the team enough. I have heard nothing from Leeds to say that they would look at, at moving him on in the summer, but I did see the reports earlier this week. And as with quite a few players, it's it's going to be quite interesting, isn't it, this mm. window? We do have a bit of an embarrassment of riches because I do wonder, will they maybe think, could we cash in on one of the, the senior centre-backs in order to help to fund purchases elsewhere? You know, because if you can bring in 10 million quid, you don't sniff at 10 million quid, do you? Um, but, you we've got Cooper, Urente, Cox, Strout, Creswell, Yelder coming through. Yeah, but Cooper's just back from three months out. Cox has had surgery in both of the last seasons, uh, last two seasons. Do they really have an embarrassment riches there or do they just have as many players as they actually need? No, you know, so, it's yeah. co- cover, cover on both sides. I don't think selling Cock or Llorente on the back of this season would raise you a vast amount of money. And I mean, there is Charlie Creswell. That has to be said, actually. that There is Creswell in the background and, and he is somebody that you would like to see pushed forward. But I, I guess it would still leave the question mark of if you got rid of one of them, would you need another one? If we don't get rid of anyone, do you think Creswell maybe goes on loan next season? I suspect that Leeds and Marsh will be far more open to players going on loan than Bielsa was, particularly because the 23 squad is, is now moved a little bit away from the first team squad. Not, and, and, I mean, the, the, tactically, you can see the, the kind of similarities between them. So there's obviously that connection there. But you're not, you've not got as many 23s training with the first team now as, as you did before. Creswell is right there, it has to be said. You know, he, he a little bit like Gelhart, is, is right at the front of the queue. So that would probably be, I think, a much bigger decision about whether to let him go than certain others um, in the 23s who who would look more peripheral at the moment. But 
we go back to this quite a lot, but when Hayden Evans, his agent was on, he was talking about Neil Shackleton looking for games. He was talking about the fact that Creswell loves being in the first team squad, but because of the way it was set up on the Bills, he was getting very few games for the 23s and not featuring for the first team much, therefore was not really getting many minutes at all. They almost fall down the cracks, don't they, to a certain extent? It kind of, although Bielsa's attitude was that Motherball once a week kind of kept you in, in game mode. You know, it was so intense and because of the way it was it was organised, you did have that and you were mixed in with senior players, so, so potentially it was kind of good for you. But yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think there will be players who feel the need to, to go out and get games. I think there'll be a... I think that question might be asked about somebody like Shackleton, for mm. example. He's pretty close to coming back to training. But again, it's been a real in and out season for him. And the years are going by. And I I just wonder with him whether there's going to come a stage where he says to himself, I really, really want to be playing. Might as well go play somewhere else. I want to yeah. play 38 times a season or even 46 times a season because that's what I need. Well, that's, that's what begs the question, I guess, about Creswell and how we use the, the centre-backs and the 23s next season like have you seen the comments from Cody Drama this week who said it's a noticeable step up from the the 23s Premier League 2 to play in, in the championship and it took him a little bit of time to adjust but now he seems to be really thriving down at, at Cardiff doing that so is there a benefit to Leeds in sending someone like Creswell out to go get among the men in the championship or even League 1 or whatever it might be to you know to experience that proper match day football rather than the 23s or just training and murder ball as long as you pick the right club and as long as you send him somewhere where they're going to look after him well and are going to play him enough and, and are going to push him and develop him, then I don't see any harm in that um, unless he's going to be heavily involved at Leeds, in which case you're, you're better off keeping him here. I interviewed Mark Jackson last season after the, the 23s were promoted and he made the point pretty firmly in that that jumping from the 23s to the Premier League is in no way can a natural progression. It, you you want it to happen, but you can't just do it by flicking a switch. So the difference in level intensity is extremely high. And actually, when I spoke to Creswell after his debut, he said the same. You know, he said, when I came up against Antonio, who actually played really, really well against... That was know, the West Ham home game. It was the West Ham home game. And I know West Ham nicked that at the end, and I know it was Antonio who nicked it at the end. But he had a really good game against Antonio. But he said, straight away, I realised... He's not. He's going to do the right thing every time the ball comes to him. Every time the ball comes to him, he'll do what he should do. And and he said the the light robots. You know, Premier League strikers are light robots in that you just don't expect them to make mistakes and they don't really give you an inch. And Creswell, I like to say, I, I thought I had a really good game that day, but it did underline to me the fact that for a twenty three stepping up, it isn't just a case of you've done well in the twenty three, so you'll be fine in the Premier League. It, it is still a learning curve that you have to claim up and and cope with. So, yeah, it's, it, it will be a balance. But I think to, to go back to the original point, I think if there are opportunities for loans that could develop players, I think Leeds will be more open to that. Will that spell out on loan for Cody Drummond perhaps benefit Leeds next season then? Because he's got out and played some football. Well, I found it hard to see much chance of him coming back had Bielsa been head coach and, and being involved. It, it all felt like it had been a bit too bitter, really, his, his loan down to Cardiff and the way it came about and for that bridge to be mended. Although Somerville was was asking to go as well and, and was keen to, to go out until the back end of the season. It should be said very much the intention of coming back in the summer and competing again. And although he, he disappeared for a little bit from the first team squad, he was back in it um, latterly under Bielsa. So it, it's not to say that the door would certainly have been closed. I, I think there's the both positions on the on each side of defence, left back and right back, I think are, are open to be competed for now. I really do left back more than any anywhere else. It might be that Leeds can get another season out of Ailing. It, it might be that 
Ailing holds on to that for the forward. But I think, you know, as we've touched on, Jury very much out on Firpo and, and behind Firpo still no, no no total clarity on who is best there, you know, and, and who mm. can fit in. And, and nobody who seems 100% suited to, to play in there. So yeah, potentially um, for, for Drammy, that, that could be the case. Isn't it funny how like, the left-back has just dragged on as an issue for years and years and years? So you've got years, like, Barry Douglas yeah. and it never seemed to be particularly 100% right there. Firpo's come in and like you, unconvincing, uh, if I'm being kind about Junior Firpo. There have been rumours this week about us maybe going back in for, you know, Javi Galan, who was um, in Spain, was at Cuesca, I think it was last season, but he moved. Yeah, they've been linked with him um, the last couple of days. It is strange. I feel like in almost every season, with a few exceptions, Charlie Taylor kind of plugged this leak for a while. And so did certain others. Steve Warnock was was decent there, decent enough. Michael Gray, but I mean, that's going back a, a long, long time now. I don't know. I've never done the, the head count, so I don't know if left-backs are thinner on the ground than most other positions. I suppose you'll have more, almost certainly more right-footers than left-footers, so, so I guess they, they will be they will be slightly at a premium, but it's never a position where Leeds have found it easy to to recruit. Ben Parker was a good left-back as well. I should give him a, a mention as well. But yeah, it, it is problematic and it always felt under Bielsa like the one position that wasn't really it wasn't really concrete. It moved around, it changed around. Sometimes it was Alioski. Like you say, you had Douglas coming in, but never really worked out for him, partly because of, of fitness. But here we go again, sort of going into this summer saying, is is it going to be Firpo and is Firpo going to find himself there or does it need to be somebody else? This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Well, you have just come from Jesse's presser, Phil, the contents of which will be known. Any big takeaways from it then today? That you uh, that you latched onto, um, fitness wise, the big question mark is over Joe Gilhart, who was injured in the twenty threes uh, on Monday night. It sounded like a dead leg. Marsh was saying it was kind of bruising and contusions. He is due to train Friday with a view to travelling Saturday, so should be okay. And the injury list pretty much looks as it was before. Football's still out. Bamford's still out. Shackleton pretty close to to training again. So I think the. The big decision this weekend is going to be, does Philip start? And I have to be honest, I think he has to. I really think unless he's short of match fitness and unless it seems like too much of a risk to do that because he, he won't last long enough in the game, I think you've you've got to put some chips on him this weekend. We were saying that in the run-up to the Southampton game. We expected him to start, didn't we? Maybe these are the two games that you identify, but maybe it's this one and then Palace. If we if we can get the, uh, the legs out of him in those two. And then obviously you've then got another... You know, a couple of weeks before Palace, haven't you? After this this game, to 
sort of get some more fitness into his legs, get the, the tactics and the training worked on even more and we can um, comfortably canter home to the end of the season. I mean, the fixture list is just mad, isn't it? Like we've come off the back of international break and then two games and then you're back into 14, 15, 16 days off. And I know it's FA, because of the FA Cup and the rearrangement of, of Palace, which it should be said is, is an absolute joke. I mean, if you're a supporter going to that game, it's highly unlikely that when it was announced, which was early April, that you haven't already given some thought to travel plans, especially if you're, if you're based abroad. I mean, this this kind of rule that's in place, although it's not a strict rule, it's kind of like guidance in the way that, you know, Premier League guides people. The, sky, the, <laughs> sky, the disdain in your the, voice. The, the, the Sky have to give you, or the broadcasters have to have to do this a certain amount of time out. This doesn't seem to, to apply, but it, it should. And I think, I think it is pretty disrespectful to people who actually try to, to go to the games. Monday night at Selhurst Park is not going to be easy anyway, but it's even less easy when you get like three and a half weeks notice or, or whatever it was. Anyway, we, we digress slightly. <laughs> Watford, Mar said today he, he thinks that the, the threat from Watford will be similar to actually what, what he's trying to do with Leeds, which is transitional play and counter-attacking. And he, he did try to talk them up. He, he did sort of say that he thinks they're more of a dangerous team than the league position would suggest, that they, they've done okay under Hodgson. He thinks Hodgson's done a, a decent job there. But the thing that's kind of changed this game slightly is the Burnley result against Everton. I think if Burnley had lost that, then then you are looking at pretty clear water between Leeds and, and the teams who are in the bottom three. Suddenly, you have Burnley going to Norwich this weekend, which is extremely winnable for them. And Leeds have got to take something from this. They they absolutely do. And and you know I think more to the point, not only would it let Burnley back into the mix a little bit more, but if Watford were to win this, then they are very much in the game as well. Yeah, if ever there was a game to win, it's this one. But it's funny, isn't it, how it's week to week we keep saying this is the one that kind of puts the season to bed. This is the one, but it does feel like this is the one that if we come out of this with three points, it is the proverbial six-pointer, isn't it? You're then talking, you know, a uh, let's have a look, what are we on, 30, 33? So you're talking an 11-point gap then to Watford. And it almost makes that Everton and Burnley result not yeah. matter. It's kind of good because it keeps it, it would pretty much relegate Norwich and Watford and it would leave Everton and Burnley to scrap out the last place. And hopefully, with with a bit of luck, we might even be above Newcastle if we can win this one. Hark they've got, they've got thee. A, He's got I know what's going on here. I, I, this is this is what could happen. <laughs> <laughs> what what else could happen is that is that we feel three teams absolutely breathing down our neck come uh, come Saturday night. Mm, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because we haven't really seen the Marsh blueprint properly Im- imposed on these players yet, have we? And that's what I, I'm kind of waiting for. I'm waiting for it to kind of kick in in that regard. Like I want to see what it is that we can do. I think the closest we possibly saw it was actually the Leicester game first I, I agree with that, yeah. I think so. I, I understand why since then it hasn't been quite so clear, particularly in the... I mean, Villa was just a really poor performance, but particularly in the Norwich and, and Wolves game, they they just became chaotic. And I, I think he was right in saying that the, the way Southampton approach games tactically doesn't make for a particularly amazing spectacle, especially... But even so, it seemed to me at the end of the game that, that Leeds would be disappointed about the way in which the control of it was lost slightly and, and the way that the, the momentum swung. It's a critical game, this, for, for a few reasons, and not least because of what's coming next. Your Palace away is, is a very, very hard game. You're not, you're not ranking them alongside City and, and Liverpool and others, but they're having a really good season. Very good. But then again, I am glad they got that win against Arsenal out of their system, so they've kind of had their moment, hopefully. Well, well, <laughs> well possibly. But then after that, it's City at home, it's Arsenal away, it's Chelsea at home. Unless Leeds 
find a way to kind of transform themselves in these sort of fixtures. I don't think I don't think you'd be putting a huge amount of money on them taking a, a vast number of points from those games. So what for the way looks to me from the games that are left, it looks to me like the most winnable, with the possible exception of of Brighton at home. But Brighton at home is so far down the line that you cannot be waiting until that point to, to suddenly get points on the board. And it, and again, it feels as if if three points come at Watford, suddenly the games against you know City and Chelsea and, and Arsenal become a little bit more relaxed and you just feel like you, you never know. Leeds going into those games with tension and pressure on them, it, it's hard to imagine much coming back. If I didn't care so much, I'd probably be quite fascinated primarily by what's going to happen in those games against those three teams to compare it to what happened earlier in the season because we played really, really well against Chelsea and nearly nicked a point, didn't we? Arsenal, we were absolutely terrible at home and Man City, obviously, we don't really need to speak about ever again. It'll be interesting to see what, what Marsh Ball brings in these games. Maybe this is where we get... Maybe that's the acid test. Um, was it well, worth sacrificing Bielsa in the attacking football for possibly being a bit more pragmatic in these games? Well, you remember last season, because the season was basically over from kind of end of January or mid-February onwards, everybody knew that, that Leeds were going to stay up. They, they got into that run of games against Liverpool and Man United and, and City and Chelsea. I think they played those four in the space of, of six games and didn't lose to any of them. They had that ridiculous win at, at the Etihad. They had games against Chelsea, Liverpool and, and Man United that they absolutely deserved to draw and, and take something from. And they were really, really competitive, but it was at a point of the season where they were, I guess, able to play without any of this kind of anxiety in the background about whether they were going to go down. If they beat Watford at the weekend and, and then get something from Palace, I think they'll be very close to being safe. So suddenly the, the complexion of them of the games that come next would change. But if they're not in a good position, City at home looks like a horrible, horrible fixture. And let's be honest, City at home suddenly looks like the sort of game that you'd be absolutely delighted if somebody else at the in the bottom three or the bottom four, five, six was playing. You'd say, well, that's great because that's um, you know that's, that, that off, is yeah. zero points, zero points for them. But there is form with Leeds. You know, they they have had these results that should be be good for confidence. I don't think we can pretend that Watford have had a good season in in any way. This is a game you have to go and win. Who's your money on to go down? Assuming Norwich are gone. Um, I would worry greatly for Everton because of the running that they have now. And it's hard to imagine an ounce of confidence in that dressing room. They've had a bad run anyway since Lampard's come in and it wasn't great before that either. But that last night, in a position to beat Burnley, who have not won many games this season, and to let it slip and to let it slip to the extent that you end up leaving with absolutely nothing, that will really, really hurt. And they have the players to get this together at the last and, and to, to, to dig themselves out of it just. But I think they are all also very close to implosion. I cannot work out how that's going to go. It's reminiscent of us. I think mm-hmm. it is. When we went down 2004, in 2004. Yeah. Yeah. It stinks of relegation, doesn't it, as yeah. a, the team at the moment? I mean, in a game like that, as an Everton fan, I don't think there's any way you could watch it and think you're staying up. And, and just I know that from an outsider's perspective, you can go, well, they've still got some good players, they've got a chance yeah. of it. But when you're in the thick of it, you're looking at that and you think, well, you say, if that had been us, if yeah, that had been us, we'd, we'd have been going, well, knackered here. Well, that, bear in mind, though, that's what quite a few people were saying after the Villa game. Coming away from Ellen Road and, and looking at the reaction to that game, a lot of people were saying, we are we are gone. You know, like, the, how, how are we going to get out of this? And then suddenly a couple of results come and, and it, your mindset is, is completely different. I just felt watching Burnley Everton last night that, you could almost tell that Burnley have been through this before and Burnley knew... And they expect it as well. They, they, they do expect it, therefore they're ready for it 
And I think if Everton had been 2-1 up in those circumstances against a team who weren't good at survival fights or were not primed for it, they'd have won that last night and Burnley would have folded. But they, they've gone through this so many times and, and they know the drill and they know what they have to do and they'll have, they have a real spring in their step at, at Norwich this weekend. I certainly think Norwich are, are going to go. I think they they will go down. I won't be surprised I, I feel, to see. I won't be surprised to see Norwich beat Burnley. Phil, you know that. Well, it, it's not beyond the bounds of possibility because you're not talking about a great team with with Burnley, um, and I don't think there's a huge amount between them. But Burnley will have the bonus of thinking to themselves, we, "We've got a massive chance now," and they'll be smelling blood from Everton with, without any doubt, and and that also makes a difference. I think Watford will go at this stage. I think if you were forcing me to bet my mortgage, I think I would put it on Everton. And they've rolled the dice in by getting rid of Benitez and putting Lampard in. That was their big roll of the dice and they, they went earlier than we did. So they made their big move because if they make another move now, that's crazy, isn't it? Well, the only... If they were to get rid of Lampard. The only I mean. option I could see for them would be either to fall back on Duncan Ferguson again or to go for somebody like Allardyce. But I have no idea how on earth you spin that given that Allardyce well, wasn't quite chased out of the club but People, as far as I could tell, seemed pretty happy for him to to be gone when he was. I, th- I think even if Leeds stay up, it's very difficult, stroke impossible, to say that it wouldn't have happened under Bielsa. You know that Bielsa wouldn't have come up with the results that were needed to make sure they finished above above the bottom three. But you also couldn't say that it was a mistake to do it because clearly it, it will have worked. And I sort of feel for Leeds that the the bigger picture here, because they they should stay up from here. You know, it, it would be a it would be a very very poor scenario if from you know 30 points with this number of games left they were to get dragged in and, and to finish in the bottom three so if if they are able to to survive the bigger picture for them and, and I guess the defining thing is going to be are they a good team next season are they a considerably better team than they've been this season i.e. are they up in the sort of area that say Palace are or are they floating still in the, the kind of zone that they're in at the moment and they, they do have to be better How do we get better though? Well, there'll be a few strands to this. One will be Marsh's tactical input and the work he does with the team. I think a, a very, very major part of it as well will be recruitment in the summer. I think they have to be fairly brutally honest about where it's gone wrong, about where they've been shot and about what they need to need to change. Uh, they Do you think they know? Do you think there's, is there an acceptance within the club they've maybe not got it right this time? Well, there has to be an acceptance that they've underperformed and that they've run very, very close to relegation much closer than they, they expected to. The, the only target this season was to stay up, but in no way was that set as scraping 17th on the last day of the season or being you know dangerously close as, as they were a few weeks back. It has not gone well and, and there have been issues with injuries obviously, but I think all of us from the outside can see that the squad hasn't been balanced enough and the squad has been short in certain areas up front more than, more than ever, I think. I mean, we, we've spoken so much this season about the midfield but actually, the longer that they're without Bamford, the more you realise that they just do not have the resources at nine that that they that they really should have. So yeah, I, I, they must be able to. They must be able to see that that that, has, that this has to to be addressed. And I think if they get the right players for Marsh, then it gives him a far bigger chance next season to create a team that looks like his. I think at the moment it's still very much inherent in a squad that that he hasn't been able to change. It's funny, you know, we are as close to um, to mid table as we are to the relegation zone. Doesn't feel like it, does it? I mean, is there any danger on the part of Newcastle, Brentford, even Brighton? I mean, they've got 34 points. With the number of games left, you'd expect them to not get dragged in. 
But they've got a fairly horrible run of fixtures as well, haven't they? Not great, but I can't see them not getting the, the odd point here or there. I think they'll be far enough away. I think Brentford on 33 points with seven games to go will probably think that they've got another win in them and, and that might might do for them. It's going to depend, I think, more than anything on what comes from the bottom three. Does anybody start to surge? You know, do Burnley get onto a run of three, four wins and, and suddenly change everything? Do Everton go backwards rapidly and, and so the gap stays as much as it is? That's going to be the first protocol for, for those teams. They, they've got to close in if they're going to make this nervous for, for teams above them. I think Newcastle will be all right. I think the teams above them will be all right as well. We speculated on our show this week. Do we see a slightly more, not defensive performance from Leeds, but slightly more pragmatic going to Watford, trying to invite them on maybe and, and catching them on the break? Because they're not particularly possession happy. We were saying this on our show, weren't we? Yeah. Two teams that don't want the ball, potentially for some periods of this. Yeah, no, that's not their their technique. And Marsh was almost touching on that himself by saying it, it will be counter-attacks and it will be transitional from them. But I don't know whether it sets the right tone, really. And Leeds have not been set up in that way going back years now, you know, back to the start of Bielsa's time. And, and it's not to say that you can't change a team or change the mindset of players, but it isn't what they've been drilled in. And it would be different to, to the way in which they've they've been coached for so long. I think away at Watford, you don't want to be reckless and you don't want to be ridiculous about the way you approach it, but you do want to go there and you do want to go there and win. And I think in order to win, you have to be aggressive and and you have to play well. And if you get it tactically perfect defensively, then yes, it can work, but there's risk involved in that as well. I mean, an ideal scenario, surely, is that we get our noses in front inside the first 20, 25 minutes and they have to start chasing the game, I guess. Yeah, very much so. And and that is what would make, you know, Leeds transitional play even more dangerous. I thought Rodrigo had another really good game against Southampton. I, I do think his his form has been better latterly and he's looked far more influential. And, and I always feel that there's a bit of a natural understanding between him and Rafinha. Um, they do seem to work well together. They do seem to know what each other is thinking or, or what they're what they're going to do. This is the moment for for big games from big players. Phillips, Rafinha, Rodrigo, others like that. You know, this is where you want them to turn up and and do the business. Get ahead early and then cruise to a nice easy win like we did against Norwich. Yeah, I mean, I did in my optimistic state of mind on our show earlier this week. I'm I'm dreaming of marsh ball clicking in this game. I mean, I'm dreaming dreaming of a 3-0 win where we get in front in the first half and then build on it. Did did we not not say this about Southampton as well? Did we not say, come on, it's surely, surely time no, for I think, a, a sort of doddle from halftime yeah, onwards. But didn't we say that Southampton are, are, are a decent yeah, team? Yeah, a fair point. But yeah. it, was, it was an opportunity to win a game against a team that you can beat. Whereas I think with the best will in the world, Watford are not as good as Southampton. No, that's that's very true. Um, and I think for everybody's sanity, a win like that would be absolutely perfect. But I have to say, it doesn't feel like it's going to be like that at any no, stage, it does it? Never, it? That's I'm, I'm keep, I keep hoping that... It's all some, cigarette paper stuff. Yeah, at some point this season we just go, ah, it's all right, we're all right now. We know that, we, okay, we've, we've been through the, the difficult, the bumpy period, this is how it is. But yeah, we've never quite arrived at that point, have we? We've been saying 35 points feels like a fairly safe benchmark and I still feel like it is. I don't think necessarily a guarantee of, of staying up, but... The sooner you can get to thirty-five points, I think you're then you're then the odd result here and there, the odd draw here and there from actually being being further on. You don't have the the strain on you of knowing that you you know as as some of the bottom three or four do now that you're going to have to win three or four of it or two or three of your last however many games to make sure that you're safe. What do you think this one looks like then? More nerves? 
Yeah, I think it will be quite nervy. Because Leeds need to win this, I think they will. I think they will edge this. I can see it being a bit Norwich away E, you know. I think um, it, there could be a little bit of that. I'm not feeling a 3 0 in my bones, I must say. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it will be It'll be tight and it'll be it'll be. I'm, I'm not anxious. feeling. I'm not feeling it in my bones. I'm feeling it in my heart, Phil. That's where I'm so feeling. You've got to say something. Else. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah I, I'm. I'm going for an away win, um, but I think it'll be by the odd goal. Mm, I feel. I feel like a two-one either way in this one could be um, painful. Mm. I think even a win, I think, will be painful in this game. There'll be moments where our Premier League lives flash before our eyes. <laughs> I mean, is the Premier League all that though? You you were talking about it earlier with disgust in your voice, Phil. It's it's nonsense, isn't it? But then you look at the accounts and God, we need to be here. Well, <laughs> some of the football's great though. I mean, some very, very high quality players in the Premier League. Some extremely good teams as well. I think City and Liverpool are some of the best Premier League teams that, that we've ever had. <laughs> Without a doubt. So I'm just chuckling to myself here because I'm just remembering the text I sent you during the Glasgow derby. Oh, uh, that's right. That's right. Saying, what is this? Is, no, no, this, my, is this football? I, yeah, I said, I said, is Scottish football always like this? this <laughs> the, the great thing about Scottish football, particularly in those games, is the kind of underlying threat of carnage and chaos. But yes, the, there's a, a distinct difference between the, the Scottish Premiership and the, and the Premier League. Because that, that Rangers-Celtic game, there's a real menace just underpinning yeah. it all real nasty nasty thing and we, we all we know, we know we know the reasons why um, but I was like watching the football thinking why do they just keep kicking it <laughs> kicking it up the field aimlessly I know so I, I guess you, you should never be blase it's the stuff that goes on round about isn't it as I say the, the kind of rearrangements with three weeks notice where the people doing this stuff say yeah that's fine yeah that's no problem when yeah, you're second to the brand send them to Selhurst Park on a on a Monday night it's no problem and then also the accounts, which if you're not can tunnel vision about your own club, it's impossible to read those and think that football in England and, and beyond is structured in a sensible way. It's just <laughs> complete madness, isn't it? And it's no surprise at all that you are finding lots of clubs in the Championship who are in trouble. And actually, you know, clubs in the Premier League are probably not in, in the best of Nick either. It is ludicrous, but it's not going to change. Nope. So we roll on with the machine, don't we? We roll on with the machine. At the Phil Hayes Show, if you want to say hi on Twitter, if you want to um, have a look at The Athletic as well, if you're not yet signed up on there. Well, I'll just mention oh, as well. Pound, pound, pound a month for six months, theathletic.com oh, forward slash leads pod. Don't want, don't want to uh, talk over that bit, but um, you were, um, I saw you tweeting about the Premier League anthem here ah, in Southampton. Yes. Has that had a doing on your podcast? No, it, it hasn't actually. I forgot to mention it, but my, my dislike of it and disdain for it is that it's clearly inspired by the Champions League anthem, which over a number of years, I mean, I remember that being played in Ellen Road and chills, you know, the hair mm-hmm. on the back of my neck stood up thought, and thought, this is it. You know, we've arrived. This is proper football and everyone kind of knows the words. And it's based on a, a proper piece of classical music. It's yeah. Zadok the Priest, isn't it? The um, the original bit of music. Uh, Handel, I think it is. Um, good knowledge. Yeah, good. <laughs> and I think they've tried to do something similar. It just doesn't work. It's not uh, forcing them to line up and do that. Just let the crowd sing. Surely that gives yeah, you a better, I know. a better impression worldwide of of, uh, of thirty six thousand people bellowing out, marching on together, rather than hearing this. And we're and because of the the timing issue, you never quite know when the players are going to come out of the tunnel. And they always used to get a massive roar and a cheer, and then they'd do the silly lineup thing, and there'd be another roar and a cheer. But we're halfway through a verse of marching on together, and then that Premier League anthem comes on, and it's naff. Just Con- consistency is what it is. It's like the turning everything to McDonald's. It's yeah. not. It's not very good but you know what you're getting and that's what they want from the Premier League yeah, I it's, think. it's a chicken nugget of an anthem isn't it mm. yeah there's a, there's an athletic long read to be done on who dreams up this stuff 
<laughs> Are you the man to write it? That's the Probably question. Probably not. No, but... Look out for that in future. Theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. And it's yes, a pound a month for six months. And we look forward to Phil writing that in the future. And we will be back next week. We'll speak to you then. The Phil Hay Show. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.